From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. Last week, the second Australasian COVID-19 conference was held in Sydney. It was hosted by an organisation that knows a lot about pandemics. ASHAM, the Australian Society for HIV, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine. Up front on the morning of day one, long COVID took the stage. An overview was presented by Dr. Ziad Al-Ali, Director of the Clinical Epidemiology Centre at VA St. Louis Health Centre in the USA. Dr. Al-Ali characterised long COVID as a post-viral syndrome that can affect nearly every organ system. He listed nervous system disorders, metabolic dysfunction, skin disorders, gastrointestinal, respiratory, kidney, musculoskeletal, cardiovascular. He also said, and I quote, we see a clear increased risk of diabetes, kidney outcomes, a remarkable increase of mental health disorders, and an alarming increase of opioids and sleep medications. That's a pretty significant disease burden but some of Australia's top researchers are onto it. I interviewed three of them after their presentations at the conference. First cab off the rank is Professor Anthony Kelleher, Director of the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. Can you give a brief summary of what you spoke about today at the long COVID session? So basically, we tried to understand what the biological changes are in people with long COVID relative to people who have had COVID but don't have the symptoms consistent with long COVID. And we did a bunch of reasonably complex immunology of a a variety of what we call biomarkers uh, to see if we could learn something about what the cause of long COVID was or at least get markers of what uh, what is generating long COVID. And what we found is that there is indeed uh, what I call dysregulation of the immune system. So the immune system has not gone back to its normal state. There is ongoing activation of the immune system in a range of compartments. Uh, there is still, the immune system is still producing uh, cytokines that it normally produces early in infection against the virus that we would normally turn off within a couple of days to a couple of weeks, they're still present and they're particularly present in people with long COVID. And then in the other arm of the immune system that we call the adaptive immune response that takes longer to to generate, which we actually uh, manipulate with our vaccinations, uh, that part of the immune system was activated as well. Uh, So there is a complex and diffuse activation of the immune system that goes on well beyond uh, the resolution of the acute infection. Our audience are largely GPs, Mm -hmm. and I'm curious uh, about clinical applications of your research for GPs. So I, I think what it tells us is that there is definitely an inflammatory process going on. So, you know, I think early on in, in uh, this condition, it got conflated with a range of other illnesses uh, and was felt to be perhaps somaticization of illness, that it uh, you know, was uh, a neuropsychiatric condition. There is clearly neurological disturbances involved and they're likely driven by this activation of the immune system. So what I think our data shows is there is definitely biological abnormalities in these individuals. What it doesn't tell us, because we don't really understand what's causing it, is how best to intervene. 
And a lot of the interventions that turn off those cytokines have significant side effects associated with them, which will cause generalized immunosuppression. And, you know, there aren't drugs that specifically turn off the cytokines we saw most rage, which are interferon beta and interferon lambda. So there's no specific therapy to, to treat those, so to easily intervene and turn those off. So although it informs us about what might be going on, it doesn't really direct therapy. I'm curious whether anyone is doing research in Australia or looking at inhibition of CCR5. I know there's a variety of hypotheses about the pathogenesis of long COVID. This is fits into one of those pockets. What are your thoughts there? So, um, you know, we've used CCR5 blockers in HIV quite a bit. And in the early days of the use of those, you know, we explored... Uh, so in HIV infection, even when it is fully treated, there is often residual immune activation. Different from this, but there are some similarities. And so we've done randomized trials of intervening with CCR5 blockers like Maraviroc and Vicroviroc. Is that for long COVID or for no, HIV? No, this is yep. for HIV, and it, they didn't really alter the immune response. So although they're they're relatively weak manipulators of the immune response because although they inhibit chemotaxis, there are other molecules that are sort of redundant in the system that I think overcome that. So, you know, I think they're relatively weak immunomodulators. So possibly not having any impact on long COVID. I mean, they are safe drugs. So from that point of view, something that would be plausible to trial in a randomised trial because there is potentially clinical equipoise of testing that and would be much safer than using something like corticosteroids, for instance. Yeah. But also, they're also, I think, relatively weak modulators of the immune system. Any uh, final words of advice for general practitioners? So I think we have to listen to the patients. I think we have to take them seriously. I think we have to try and relieve their symptoms. You know, with most post-viral fatigue syndromes, they do resolve. They often take up to two years to resolve, uh, but they do resolve. So I think reassuring the patient that, it, that this is likely to resolve uh, and if it is purely sort of post-viral fatigue and there is an, uh, an element of post-thromboembolic phenomenon or post-cardiac damage, that sort of thing, then obviously those things need to be treated as specific entities. But if it is more diffuse and mostly fatigue and brain fog, then I think reassurance, sort of a graduated return to normality, making sure that people you know, do that in a very graduated, measured way, not to try and break through the barriers, but to sort of push the barriers back slowly and symptomatic relief where that's appropriate on the grounds that, that it's likely to resolve. And I, the other thing that I would strongly counsel is, you know, to make sure there's nothing else that uh, you can reverse. So if, you know, the symptoms are things like fatigue, make sure their thyroid function tests are normal. If there is evidence of breathlessness and, uh, you know, uh, breathlessness on exertion, then make sure that their cardiorespiratory status is, in fact, as close to normal as it can be before you assume that this is what it is.
was Professor Tony Kelleher, Director of the Kirby Institute at UNSW. Next, I spoke with researcher Jane Sinclair from the School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences at the University of Queensland. It was just a super quick chat, but gives an insight into what Dr. Kirsty Short's team are up to in their UQ labs. Could you give us a rundown on the key points of your presentation today at the conference? Today I just briefly spoke about a part of my project that's looking at the possible immune dysregulation uh, as a mechanism behind long COVID. And what have your findings been so far? So far, our findings have been quite consistent with the literature. In our small patient cohort, we've found significant sustained but low-level inflammation in the serum of long COVID patients, uh, and this is about 16 months post-infection. Anything that surprised you? What surprised us was how low these levels were. So uh, in our cohort, there were about uh, the 10 picogram level, um, which is right towards the lower end of the sensitivity of most tests. So I think this is why that there's a little bit of trouble in using this as a clinical biomarker for assessing if someone's at risk of getting long COVID because half of the time it's actually too low to detect. Wow. Um, but if we do have quite sensitive tests, we can see that these differences are sustained. Ah, so it's small, it might be hidden, but you need to look for it to determine whether someone's at risk of long COVID or whether someone has long COVID? Well, we're working that out at the moment. We're seeing if these cytokines are more of a cause or more of an effect, and it could be a little bit of both. So what's in this research that's applicable for GPs? Is there anything that you see that might be of interest or relevance or helpful for them when they have patients coming in with long COVID? Uh, to be determined, we're working on it. I won't say too much on that at oh, the moment. Okay, sure. um, but uh, we are definitely hopeful that we can eventually go on to show how this can be used as a diagnostic marker. That was researcher Jane Sinclair from the School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences at the University of Queensland. Finally, let's hear from Associate Professor Carrie Lancaster from the Centre for Social Research in Health at UNSW. She was speaking at the conference about a qualitative study which is being done within the ADAPT cohort study at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. So we've been doing social research in collaboration with the clinical study, which has been following people's recovery experiences post-COVID, travelling with them for two years to see how they have been adapting, changing and managing their recovery, particularly in the face of uncertainty. What, uh, what's your study group size? We had 39 participants, um, which we followed up uh, three, over three waves over two years with 106 interviews. Most of the interviews were around an hour long, some much longer. And the idea was to trace people's experiences over time and not only in terms of their personal embodied experience, but also in the context of a changing pandemic context and social world as well. Most of our audience are general practitioners. What was in your study that might be clinically helpful for them? That's such a good question and something that we've been reflecting on a lot in the context of the ADAPT study, including in discussions with the clinical team as yeah, well. Yeah. And as Professor Greg Dorr said this morning, it's just so important to listen to patient experience. We're in a changing pandemic context where the outcomes are different with variants of concern, with different people's own um, 
own bodies, different people's own situations, different people's own lives and their capacities to adapt and change and adapt to the challenges that they're facing. So listening to patient experience and I think the work around the sociology of health and illness is really important to kind of fold in here to recognise that people's embodied experiences are just a part of how we come to know long COVID alongside clinical and biomedical research as well. And the term long COVID itself is a patient-made term which is, to our knowledge, one of the first patient-made terms in medicine. And so recognising that the expertise and what we know primarily at the beginning of the pandemic was coming from patients, often in the absence of clinical witness, Mm. particularly in the places that were hardest hit around the world. So learning from patient experience, listening to what's going on in people's lives and ensuring that people are getting the care that they need. So they sound like really good values of making it, having patient-centred care. What does your research there in terms of saying that's the way we need to go for long COVID? I think one of the things which was highlighted this morning as well is that long COVID is not one thing. It's a multi-system, multi-organ, multidisciplinary disease, which requires multidisciplinary care as well. And that's not only within clinical care, but also in terms of social care and social supports. So that's probably something really important for general practitioners to think about. The other thing that we've learned from participants, and I think a lot of the research internationally is showing, is rest and pacing is really important. So not not pushing beyond bodily capacities, which is quite counterintuitive. I think some people kind of want to push through, exercise through. So there's a really great body of work that's starting to come out around that internationally. And also just recognising that, particularly because people's lives are different, people's situations are different, the effects of long COVID are likely to have uneven effects across different groups of disadvantaged, low resource settings as well. So thinking about what other kinds of community support and social support and social care might be available alongside clinical care is really important. What are some of those examples of other kinds of community care? Well, I think we're still working that out. So one of the questions that we've been asking participants is, what kind of care have you drawn upon? Yeah, what kind of care do? have you had? Yeah. Where do you go when you need support? And given the nature of the cohort we've been working with at St Vincent's, it's on the whole been a more wealthy, more privileged kind of group. And I think what's really necessary in long COVID research going forward is also thinking about areas of deprivation, areas of more ethnic and cultural diversity, thinking about communities that might have been affected differently, but also communities that might have different social supports and resources to draw upon and to learn from it how different communities have responded and looked after themselves and the people around them in different ways. Can you list some of those examples that you've heard from your research? Honestly, some things come down to really practical, very mundane care in terms of meals, in terms of having, you know, stories of participants, you know, not having the energy to kind of get through cleaning the house all in one go and so people helping with with practical things in that way. Stories particularly from people who have had periods of isolation as well during the acute COVID phase of practical things even down to a coffee left on the doorstep. I think as as Greg Dore also highlighted this morning, there's just so much, so much desperation out there for people who are looking for answers and, and solutions. And certainly some of the participants we spoke to have have grabbed at all kinds of hopeful promise magic bullet things. At this point, there isn't a magic bullet treatment that's going to help with long COVID. So it's about 
finding ways of kind of managing and living with and making up a recovery in the longer term and thinking about how participants are, can adapt their lives around those different capacities. So it's if, if a GP can help a patient to bolster up their social connectedness, their community support, that's going to help them manage this disease as well or this syndrome. Yeah, and there's, I think, lots we can learn from other experiences of long-term illness and communities, for example, around ME and chronic fatigue who have been dealing with these kinds of questions for a long time, including the bodies of social research around that as well, which have spoken to issues around managing illness in the face of uncertainty, managing unexplained symptoms, because of course we're still learning a lot about what the symptoms of long COVID are, how this comes together as a multi-system disease. So it's managing that headspace around expectations and lack of understanding what's going on, but helping a patient come to and okayness with that so that they can still live their life and to some capacity. And also managing that, I imagine, as I'm not a clinician myself, but as a clinician with a limited toolbox to offer at the moment. So with the limited tools we have available, how can we help mm. patients? And it's wonderful to see more specialist long COVID clinics popping up. And I think with more of those clinics and people accessing those more, there'll be that multidisciplinary holistic response to care and hopefully recovery. So from that world, people who have chronic illnesses that can be quite debilitating, what does the research show as effective in terms of examples? Or do you have a list of examples of what people do to cope? I think what we have learned through the decades with HIV and with hepatitis C and with the drug user community, which is where a lot of my research sits, yep, is yep. also the really important place for community response as well and community organisations. And I think that's still... It's coming together around COVID-19, particularly in Australia, where we haven't had mm. the same sort of um, organised community support groups or patient advocacy groups. That's happening much more overseas. Do you know of any? Like I know the long haulers of, in the United States, they've got an organised approach in some respect, or at least a, a connectedness. Yeah. Do you know of any in Australia that people who have long COVID could connect with? I think a lot of people, particularly in our study, were connecting with those international groups as right. well um, yep. that have various arms in their online presence in different parts of the world. But our study's also shown that that kind of support might only work for some people some of the time at some points in their experience of illness, that sometimes even just the overwhelming amount of information that is available online is just too much. Oh, and then yeah. there's also technological barriers and culturally and linguistically diverse barriers to just getting online and having a chat with someone in America. So yeah. any final words around this for GPs? As I said in the presentation this morning, I think it's just really important to remember that although long COVID is now coming to be known as a biomedical condition, it's really important to also understand this as an object of study that is a social one and situated within people's social worlds, within their embodied knowledge and listening to patients' experiences and embedding that in research and clinical practice going forward will be really important. That was Associate Professor Carrie Lancaster from the Centre for Social Research in Health at UNSW. And that's the research rundown on long COVID from the second Australasian COVID-19 conference. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Tea Room.
If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.